Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Heart Speaks. How's everyone doing today? Just uh, getting ready to basically talk about a very cool and near and dear heart topic to me. That didn't make any sense. (laughs) Getting ready to talk about a topic that's really near and dear my heart. And it's a controversial topic. It's a spicy topic. One of the spiciest topics that's animated me for at least a decade. My major was international studies uh, with a concentration in conflict and diplomacy. My focus of topic was the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I spent many years talking about Israel. I have a very acute allergy to anti-Semitism because of how I grew up. Uh, I grew up in a religious environment, first of all, a Christian home that observed Jewish festivals like Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, etc., which meant that my sense of time and my sense of seasonal activity, my calendar, my clock, my biorhythm was actually very much crafted and shaped by Jewish culture. And so as a result, I developed an uh, allergy to anti-Semitism, and that culminated in a lot of Israel advocacy that I did in college, as well as a little bit post-college. And as a result of that, I learned a lot about political protests and sort of landscape that has been affected in the American zeitgeist by the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But I also learned a lot about my own dogmas. I learned a lot about my own orthodoxies at the time, which, quite frankly, failed to see the Palestinian, uh, failed to uh, really be able to encounter Israel in a loving, relational way, as opposed to an idolatrous, dogmatic way. And I think both communities in this conflict have, in many cases, developed an idolatrous relationship with whether it's Israel or Palestine. And I think that's just part of the human condition. It's a, it's a natural thing that we do when we are threatened by scarcity or threatened by annihilation or even perceived annihilation. We cling very, very strongly to that which gives us a sense of shelter and stability. This is a very human thing. There's nothing evil about that, although it can result in evil actions against the other. And it has resulted in evil actions against the other, not just within the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but in conflicts around the world. And this is a very uh, special moment, I think, in the history of human consciousness, where we're trying to evolve past some of the dogmas and orthodoxies of our, let's call them, older way of viewing the world. And you can call that uh, religious views. You can see that culturally. I think that historically speaking, at least since the Enlightenment, in many ways, we've been sort of operating out of old software. But there's a brilliant Israeli rabbi by the name of Micha Goodman, who once said in a talk that you can either, when you're confronted with existential questions about the philosophy or the religion or the paradigm that you operate in, when you see that that paradigm is no longer useful or sustainable or true, one of the things that you can ask yourself is, do I want to grow out of my religion or do I want to grow my religion? And it seems to me that the second task is the, is the task for me. Again, whether that's growing my religion, growing my paradigm, growing the amount of lenses through which I view reality. And I've been working on that for the past few years, especially with the creation of theory of enchantment especially with the understanding, the psychological understanding that as human beings, when we encounter scarcity and we don't know what to do with that scarcity, we tend to caricature others, stereotype others, 
uh, see others as uh, objects in order to reaffirm a sense of security. And we have to learn better ways of being, different ways of being, different ways of dealing with scarcity in order to evolve past our tendency to uh, kill each other (laughs) when threatened with real or perceived extinction. Now, is this evolution possible? Good question. I don't know if this evolution is possible. Human beings have gone through many periods of evolution. The creation, the existence of the prefrontal cortex, you know, in our brains is arguably evidence of the possibility of evolution. So I don't know. But this is what I choose for my project is to try to learn how to get rid of all those things within me that block me from loving. And uh, it's a lifetime project and it's a hard project, but uh, I'm in it for the long haul. Now, all that being said, I want to provide, present this video essay to you as a sort of new statement uh, about my thoughts on Israel-Palestine. And the very fact that I'm using the word Palestine, for those of you who know, uh, is really is really a change in, in me and and in the way I experience the world. So I hope that uh, impacts you. I hope it gets you at the very least to be curious about, about this conflict and about how we might approach this conflict differently than the way that we've been approaching it historically. So here goes nothing. Here's what I've discovered in the past few years of doing, especially a lot of theory of enchantment work. I've discovered that if a person is made to believe that they do not matter, they will act accordingly. This basic yet profound fact about the human condition has nothing to do with how much a person has in their bank account. It is the folly of our late-stage consumerist capitalist era to confuse access to money with psychological safety. There are plenty of people with money who are addicts to that same pile of money, but they're addicts. (laughs) There are plenty of people with material power who are addicted to that power and who act like it. So it should not be assumed that just because you have money and power, you're not experiencing scarcity. You may not be experiencing material scarcity, but as Jesus pointed out, man does not live by bread alone. This is why I find the language of privilege, as it is currently used in our political discourse, to label so-called white men in power, to be both irresponsible and corrosive. Because at the end of the day, the men in Wolf of Wall Street were dickheads. They did terrible things and screwed over many people, but they were also fundamentally addicts. And addiction is not real power. It's not real in the meaningful or lasting sense of the word, enduring sense of the word. Psychological safety is knowing that you are loved, that you belong, that you matter, and that in spite of the suffering that life will inevitably bring, it is still worth living. If you don't live in an environment that cultivates an awareness of this truth, and so many of our societies fail to cultivate this because of a whole host of reasons that I'm not going to get into right now, but if you don't live in an environment that cultivates this, the neural pathways in your brain, in my brain, will cause us to perceive the world as an us versus them hellscape, a war of all against all that you must wage battle in, in order to protect your own. The only way to interrupt this is to experience something that disrupts the story you have been led to believe is true all your life. The only way to sustain this interruption and utilize your newly developed neural pathways is to build and be part of a community of people who are also engaged in self-work via an ecology of practices capable of sustaining it. For example, I know of a gentleman who was caught up in white supremacy ideology for the longest time, until he started to meet Black people who treated him with kindness. It was that simple. Now he lives his life interrupting extremist organizations and doing some incredible healing work for men who have been caught up in that old system of thinking. And this worked not because Black people possess some magical leprechaun powers, but because when you treat bigots with kindness, you interrupt the neural pathways in the brain that tell them that the world hates them. 
which causes cognitive dissonance and influences the brain to change itself. And there's a brilliant book, by the way, if you want to, if you're more interested in learning about the brain, uh, it's called The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Deutsch. And it's also worth pointing out to remind you that the most complex system in the known universe is your brain. So I cannot stress this enough. Bigotry is a defensive mechanism that all human beings, all human beings, all you, me, (laughs) all human beings deploy when they feel unsafe. The bigot hates because on a fundamental level, he believes that others hate him. He feels that others, through hating him, also threaten him. So making bigots feel unsafe as a way to change their behavior only goes so far until it starts to undo itself. And there are many messy societal implications to what I just said, that last part, uh, but the science, I think, is very clear on this. Now, let's complexify this further by taking or by, by speaking of not only a single person, but of an entire group of people. When an entire group of people feel like they are under attack, when they feel like they do not matter, when they feel like no one loves them, they will gravitate toward whatever group of people shows them love or acceptance, even if this love is warped or, quite frankly, fucked up, right? It is important to note here that the people who show them affection are, in most cases, also wounded. (laughs) They have not healed, and they will do the best that they can do, even though the best that they can show is a kind of distorted type of affection that is the shadow of the essence of the real thing that we call love. They don't know what real love is. And and hardly, I I think hardly any of us really know what real love is, in many ways. Uh, They have never been shown it, and they are starved for the real thing. So... In this case, when this happens, and this happens so often, we will take whatever we can get. And this is where hyper-tribalistic extremist ideologies come from. And I want you to hear the word extremist. I want you to hear the word extremist in a very destigmatized fashion. I want you to hear it descriptively here. The word extremist is simply a word meant to refer to those whose states of mind are impacted by psychological scarcity and who thus perceive the world in extreme black or white thinking. I fall into this way of thinking many times, and I'm sure you do too. It's very human to do so, right? Another word for this in psychology is called splitting, which refers to our tendency as human beings to see others as all good or all bad, instead of seeing others as containing both, instead of seeing ourselves as containing both. Again, this type of worldview, when scaled up and acted upon, tends to produce violence, hatred, and unnecessary suffering. And it is also a defensive mechanism deployed by people who deep, 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 deep down, do not feel loved. Okay, you still with me? All good? Great. Now you understand the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There it is. (laughs) Jewish Israelis have always felt like their existence has been under attack, that they are unloved by the rest of society, that when push comes to shove, the nations of the world will murder them if given the chance. And, you know, you can see the historical record. You can look at the historical record and see why they feel this way, right? The Holocaust the Spanish Inquisition, Russia and the Soviet Union's expulsion of Jews, persecution of Jews, right? Just a few recent examples. The, that Jews in Israel now have sovereignty. The fact that Jews in Israel now have power, right? Sovereignty is just another word for power, does not mean that their trauma has been healed. And the impact of that trauma biologically, right? That, it's not, a trauma is not an intellectual, cerebral, excuse me, it, it's not a It's not an academic exercise. It's a felt subconscious sense that is manifested regardless of what is happening on a cerebral academic level, right? 
So the impact of that trauma cannot be overstated. And if you are viewing the world through a lens informed by the Holocaust, which is to say, viewing if your lived reality is impacted by the awareness that people try to exterminate you, and how could it not be informed by that? Um, this naturally creates a need for defensive measures to protect yourself and your community from annihilation. Those defensive measures are both necessary and susceptible to going too far. And when they do go too far, those measures produce extremism. And so, of course, it is the case that within the Israeli population, there are Jewish extremist groups who believe that they must absolutely destroy their Palestinian neighbors as a matter of defending themselves from, from annihilation. And what you need to understand is that this destructive urge has emerged as a function of trauma. This is born of deep and painful wounds. These wounds will take decades, if not centuries, to heal. Merely having power in the form of a Jewish state may create the capacity for that healing to emerge, but it is not the same as the healing itself. And Jews in Israel cannot heal unless they are in a safe space that is conducive for this healing to take place. And so whenever global leaders around the world call for boycotting Israel, and whenever Palestinian leaders call for wiping Israel off the face of the earth, this trauma is reinforced and the scarcity mentality is activated. Whenever a Palestinian stabs and kills an Israeli civilian, this trauma is reinforced. When I hear liberal progressive Jewish leaders speak of holding Israel to a higher standard and ending the occupation of the West Bank, I agree in principle with the spirit of what's being called for, but I see nothing mentioned about the real cognitive psychological trauma that gives rise to the occupation and more specifically, the rise of extremist groups in the first place and the rise of the surveillance aspect of the Israeli government, which is really the, the truly corrosive aspect of the occupation and really what we mean, I think, when we are trying to talk about the dangers of the occupation. This will take generations to heal. And it's important that people recognize that. And this is a complex puzzle in a way because of that. It's not simple to solve this. Okay, still with me? Great. Palestinians experience the same trauma. They are constantly told by Israelis, especially extreme right-wing Israelis, that their existence is a fabrication, that their culture and origin story is a sham, and that they effectively should be wiped, wiped off the face of the earth. They are also constantly told that they are not to be trusted. Remember the surveillance-like nature of the occupation, right? And think about what that does to a, a people. They're constantly told, and if it's not explicit, it's implicit. They're not to be trusted, that their entire existence as a matter of justice ought to arouse suspicion. This is the corrosive nature and impact of the occupation. And by the way, by occupation, I don't mean that Israelis have no right to the West Bank. I want to be very clear what I mean when I say occupation. I mean that any imposition of a surveillance state, which is what the occupation represents and is, any imposition of a surveillance state which seeks to control every single movement of a people will by definition corrode and degrade that people. This is simply a fact. And if Israelis were forced to endure something similar, I assure you they would feel the same way. This is the human condition, right? This is not unique to the Israeli-Palestinian context. The signal that Palestinians receive when subjected to this is the same feeling of I don't matter, I'm unloved, I'm not wanted feeling that I described earlier. The constant experience of surveillance imposed by the Israeli government in the name of protecting its people produces the feeling of a lack of protection and invasiveness within the Palestinian population. Naturally, 
This leads to, de- to the development of extremist groups within Palestinian society, reinforcing those same beliefs, which is then used to justify their existence. This past winter, I was at a checkpoint for nearly two hours, crossing over from Bethlehem into Israel proper. Now, this checkpoint, as seen from the Palestinian perspective, was arbitrary, draconian, and simply passed for the purpose of making the population feel the might of the Israeli government. Imagine for a second that you're a pregnant woman on your way to the hospital and you find yourself in this predicament. Imagine you're on your way to work. The constant disruption will affect the way you experience both yourself and your community, and it will likely make you hate Israelis, or at the very least reinforce a sense of otherness, a sense of separation, us versus them, me versus you dynamics we're talking. None of this is a justification or an excuse for the violence that Israelis and Palestinians wage against each other, but it makes it understandable. And what what I am seeking is to understand And there's a difference between understanding and justification. I'm not saying that it is just. I'm saying that I understand it, right? I hope this enables you to see the tragedy at work here. Because at the end of the day, what is playing out is in many ways totally to be expected since it it is what has played out between humans since the dawn of time. And I do not personally know the answer to this dilemma. But those Israelis and Palestinians who end up bringing Peace to their land will be those who can see their own stories and their own traumas reflected in the eyes of each other. It will be those same Israelis and Palestinians who can feel all their sorrow and all their rage while also being able to hold the sorrows and rage of the other. This is a very difficult task. This is a very difficult task. That requires practice, by the way. Both the Palestinian and the Israeli community is holding on to their own narrative to defend themselves from the threat of annihilation. But paradoxically, it is precisely that clinging that can lead or further entrench the threat of annihilation in the first place. There's a great song that I love that just came out like last year, a few years ago. And the tagline of the song is, you've got to let go if you want to be free. Letting go is a profound skill set, and it may take us centuries to learn how to do it. But I have great faith in the Israeli and Palestinian people, in their ingenuity, in their bravery, and in their courage. And perhaps at the end of the day, I don't know, I'll speculate. Maybe it'll be they who end up leading the way for the rest of us humans. After all, Israelis and Palestinians are cousins, family. And perhaps this family can teach us through their pains and their profound suffering how we might all become a human family once more by learning, finally, how to love and be loved in return. This is The Heart Speaks. 